Where were you in that video? It's kind of interesting when you look at these ladies who are running this race. 140 miles, the finish line is in sight. Their bodies aren't cooperating anymore. They're tired, they're worn out, they're hurting. And yet they keep on going. They keep on going to the end. They weren't even running for first place. They were running for fourth and fifth place for themselves. We're running a race, and we've been called to run this race. In fact, if you look in the book of Hebrews, the author talks about this race that we have been called to run and to finish well. Some of us may be like these two women in the video in this Christian race. We're tired. We're worn out. We seem to be uh, falling down and stumbling. And sometimes we have to make up our minds, are we going to get back up and finish? Do I have any runners out here this morning? Anybody run? You got that 26.2 thing on the back of your car? 13.1? 10K? 5K? I saw one the other day you should find and buy it. It said 0.0. And I said, I want that for my car. 0.0. But we have all been called to run the race of Jesus Christ. But let's face it, guys. It's easy to begin well and not to end well. Last semester was the, last year was the first year that I had been serving as president before being uh, selected as the uh, permanent president. I was the interim. And so I had the opportunity as I saw our students to come in to be able to welcome them to campus, to be able to challenge them and encourage them to, to begin well and to end well. And it was amazing to me, at the beginning, I have all of these bright-eyed, eager students who are just ready to go into college and excel and be on the dean's list. They're going to graduate in three years, not four. They are excited. And yet, as the semester begins and they go to that first day of class, and they go to the second day of class, things are going good. But by about the second week, they begin to want to sleep in in the mornings. They began to want to stay up late at night and not get up in the mornings and go to class. And the next thing you know, they're falling behind in class. And the next thing you know, somebody is dropping the course. The next thing you know, you're halfway through the semester. Somebody's grades aren't doing too good at this point. And so what do they do? They withdraw from the course because it's too late uh, to, to get out of the class. So you basically withdraw and lose your money, but you don't get a failing grade. But there are some who will realize I'm behind and I've got to catch up. And they'll go and they'll sit in their professor's office and they'll ask for some special tutoring. They'll get with a study partner and they'll begin to study. They'll begin to carve out time in their schedule to do the readings and to do the assignments that they have. And at the end of that semester, they get a passing grade because they finished what they had started. Let's face it, folks, starting things can be relatively easy. It's finishing things that tests us all. I started a new diet this week. Anybody else start a new diet this week with me? I blew it the first day, but I started it. And I'll start a new diet tomorrow, and probably you will too. Every first of the year as we're making our res resolutions for the next year, I bet that you are like me. You say, I'm going to go to the gym, I'm going to lose 20 pounds this year. 
And guess what? On January 2nd, you're like me. You drive up to the gym. You can't find a parking spot because everybody else has decided that they're going to do the same thing. They're going to lose 20 pounds. They're going to go to the gym every day because it's the healthy thing to do, and that's the resolution. But you go back on March 1st, there are plenty of empty parking spots because people have already given up on losing that 20 pounds. They've already given up on that diet, and uh, we just don't have quite the muscles at that point that we wanted. But it's easy to begin. It's easy to go that first day. It's just hard to keep on going. Getting married is relatively easy. You know, over a course of 25 years in the military, I would have many uh, young sailors and Marines come up and, and they would say, Chaps, I, I, I want you to, to marry me. I've fallen in love. And many times I wanted to say, I'm glad you're in love, but you're going to get over it. <laughs> you, you'll get over it. Trust me. <laughs> but that, that girl or that guy was the, the one. And I'm saying, no, it just happened to be the one at the time. <laughs> You've known him for a day. Uh, but many times, and I, I tell people all the time, I'd much rather do a, a funeral than a wedding because everybody I buried has stayed dead. Over 50% of the marriages that I've done have not stayed married. But it's easy to start that marriage. It's easy to have the honeymoon. It's easy to say, I love you, and things are going great, and we're in that honeymoon phase. But boy, when the bills begin to come, and when we realize that our spouse Choose with their mouth open, and they squeeze the toothpaste from the wrong end of the tube, and they leave the toilet seat down. That's supposed to be up, right? <laughs> they leave the toilet seat in the wrong place. Oh, man, then the conflict begins to come, and we have friction. But let me tell you, conflict is not bad. Unresolved conflict is what's bad. That's what destroys relationships and marriages. But you see, it's easy to get married, but it's harder to stay married through struggles and adjustments and trials. The addict or the alcoholic can easily give up their drug or their alcohol for that first day. In fact, it's not uncommon to be able, and I think this is part of the deceptive nature, uh, as people say, alcoholism, it's, it's cunning baffling, and baffling. Uh, I can do without it. I can do without it. And so they can go a week. They can go two weeks. But if that person is an alcoholic, guess what? They're going to go back. And it's going to consume them once again. And the same is true in the Christian life. Becoming a Christian is relatively easy. Someone shows us the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hear it. We realize we have sinned against a holy and righteous God. We repent of our sins. We confess the name of Jesus Christ. We're immersed into him, and that old person is buried, and we come up as a new creature in Jesus Christ. But then pretty soon, those old temptations and trials begin to come into our lives again, and we thought that we, we were done with that. We thought we'd never have to consider those temptations ever again in our lives. Pretty much we realized that the people we thought would be excited about my Christian faith aren't. Jesus said they don't like me. They hated me. They'll hate you too. So don't expect the world to love you and embrace you because you are a follower of Jesus. As you look at more and more of where our culture is headed, you're going to see 
that Christians began to become less and less appreciated and their voices will become less and less in our public square and because that's not what people want to hear. But it's important for us to keep on speaking the truth of God. And pretty soon we find that the devil is enticing us with the temptations of the world and we struggle and we find that it's harder to stay faithful and we want to give in and sin. But the real test of our faith is this. Will we endure? Will we cross the finish line doing whatever it takes to finish well? Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is a passage that you're familiar with. It's a story we learn uh, in Sunday school and Bible studies as we're growing up, and it's, it's one, I think, that's a pretty simple story. One, chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, we will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This passage of Scripture is one that... Uh, <clears throat> we learn as a child. Do I have any fishermen out here? Any, any people that like to go fishing? All right. I hope that you're a much more enjoyable and a successful fisherman than me. My fishing experience has been dreadful. My dad took me fishing for the first time at uh, the Roanoke Rapids Lake. I was a young boy, about eight years old, and I was so excited because our church had bought some property on the Roanoke Rapids Lake and uh, we were going to go camping and fishing. And so we went up that afternoon, Friday afternoon, after he got off of work. And we have this camper shell on the back of the truck. And I have my rod and reel and a fishing pole. And I am so excited. I'm an eight-year-old boy. Daddy, Daddy, please take me fishing. And Daddy has taken me fishing. We get there, and I throw my lines out in the water. And I fish, and I fish, and I fish, and I catch absolutely nothing. I throw, I get my fishing pole, I put that out there, I got the bobber, I got the worm, maybe they don't like the bait that I've been using, the lures, so I'm going to use a, a fishing worm and I'm going to try to catch something the old-fashioned way. 
and the fish are not there. They are not biting. They are not taking the hook, literally. <laughs> and uh, I give up. I think Dad and I probably had some uh, some pork and beans and Vienna sausages. That was our dinner for the night. And about 8 o'clock when the sun is down, we get into the back of that camper shell. Pretty soon it begins to hear, <laughs> this is the mosquitoes. And they're coming in, every little crevice that is that's possibly there. And so my dad begins to take toilet paper and stick it in all the places, the cracks that could possibly allow a mosquito to get in. And as soon as he has all of the cracks filled, I said, Daddy, I got to pee. <laughs> so we had to go through the whole process of getting that thing sealed up once again. The second time he took me fishing, we went down by the banks of the Roanoke uh, River, and the, the name of my hometown is Roanoke Rapids. It's named Roanoke Rapids because of the rapids. And we were walking down to go fishing, and my dad said, Son, don't fall in the water. I said, I won't, Daddy. Next thing, I'm in the water, and my dad's long arm is lifting me up out of the water. So those were my two fishing trips, and I can't say that I enjoy fishing, so I'm hoping that you have much better success as a fisherman than I had. But, you know, we were fishing for pleasure. These are fishermen who are earning their living as fishermen. This is Zebedee and Sons' fishing business. This is Simon, Peter, and Andrew going out and fishing all night and catching nothing. And they're standing in their nets, washing their nets, getting the debris out of them, getting the dirt out of them so that they can go fishing tomorrow on a new day. And Jesus, this carpenter, comes and he's, be he's teaching and he begins to get pressed by the people. And so he sees the boats, he gets in one of the boats, pushes out a little ways from the shore, and begins to teach the people. It's interesting, you read this passage of Scripture, we have no idea what he taught the people. And many stories in the Gospels is that very same way. Jesus was teaching, we don't know what he was teaching. But the great lesson for us is what Luke has recorded here for us in this Gospel passage. On this fishing trip, they caught absolutely nothing. They're standing in their failure, their defeat, washing the nets, getting ready to fold them up, put them back in the boat for another day. But Jesus, this carpenter, has a different idea for what they're to do. And he says to these fishermen, why don't you put your nets out on the other side of the boat in the deep water? Now, are they going to listen to this carpenter? What does he know about fishing? They're done. They've got the nets clean. They don't want to go back out. They're tired. They've been up all night long. They're in a crisis of faith. Jesus says, launch out into the deep water and let your nets down for a great catch. And what's Simon's response? Simon says, Lord, we have fished all night and taken nothing. We're going to go home and go to bed. That wasn't his response. His response was, we have fished all night and taken nothing. Nevertheless, at your bidding, we will go and let down the nets on the other side. You know, sometimes we feel like giving up. We feel like, you know, I've done everything that I know how to do. 
I'm standing in my, my fears, my failures, my defeats. I've got my nets just about cleaned up and put back in the boat, and maybe I'll go out another day. But God does not allow us to wait another day because the time is now, and God calls us in the now time to make a difference in the world. He calls us to be the light of the world now. He calls us to transform the world in which we live now, not tomorrow. And so we stand in that crisis of faith when we feel perplexed and discouraged. Do we get back up and go out into the deep water and let our nets down for a catch? You know, there are times I get very discouraged. And it would be easy to give up and to think nobody cares. I'm doing this all in vain. And yet the voice of God is go back and launch out into the deep water. You see, we tend to think that nobody else faces difficult times. We think it's only me. I will guarantee you today that whatever struggles you are having in life today, if you were to come up this morning and turn around and face the, the congregation and confess the struggles that you're having, there would be a group of people in this room that would raise their hands because they're struggling with the same thing you're struggling with. Yesterday morning, I went to a men's group. It was a, a regional men's group in eastern North Carolina, and I spoke to a group of men, and I was talking to them about being leaders and stepping up and being the godly men that God has called them to be. And one of the points that I dealt with with these men was the fact that they needed to deal with the sin, the secret sins in their hearts. That the things that they think nobody else knows and that if they did know they would never speak to them again, that there were other men in that very room who were experiencing the same type of thing. For years, when I was a young youth minister, I stayed in the home of a deacon and his wife. The deacon was an alcoholic. Nobody in the congregation knew that he struggled with alcohol. I went in one night. He had had a pistol threatening his wife's life. He was hiding booze all around the house, getting up in the middle of the night, drinking. He was getting further and further away from God. He was alienating himself from his wife, from his children, from his family. He thought nobody else struggled. And I'm glad to say today that because of the way our congregation handled that situation and we loved him and we loved his family, he was sober 16 years before his death from cancer. He gained sobriety, and he was a different person. He was a different man because God worked in his life and in his heart. But he thought nobody else knew. But only when he began to realize other people struggled too was he able to confess to God and get the assistance and the help that he needed. I talked yesterday to these men about dealing with the secret sin of pornography. Do you know that most kids under in middle school and less are now having the opportunity to view pornography the first time? And now we live in a culture that just normalizes it. But if you don't think that pornography is destroying a relationship between you and your wife and you and your children and how you view people of the opposite sex, you're wrong. I remember one day sitting in my office at Quantico and I had a Marine's wife come into my uh, office 
And she said, my husband is a pornography addict. And I'm really not clicking. You know, this is something that, that I didn't really understand. I didn't understand addictions and that kind of thing. I met with the two of them. He basically said, like, I'm not doing anything wrong. And I'm saying, yes, but it's destroying your relationship with your wife. Your wife is desperately craving your attention and your love and your affection downstairs in the, in the living room, watching a TV show or holding hands and sharing your life together, but you're upstairs viewing pornography. Something happened a while back that I thought was one of the greatest things, and that's the Me Too movement, where people who had been sexually assaulted and sexually abused stood as a group and they said, me too. And when I saw some of the people that I knew who said, me too, it broke my heart. It broke my heart to think that people had to go through those horrible circumstances. But as I said a little while ago, this morning if we came up and we turned and we confessed our deepest, darkest hurts and trials and temptations here, there would be people around this room today who would say me to? Yesterday, after I had finished speaking, all of the men came forward and some began to confess some of the things. And the guy standing next to me, he said, I almost lost it all because of pornography. I didn't shun him. You know what I did? I grabbed him and I hugged him. And I said, I love you, brother. And I'm glad that God is working in your life. And, you know, sometimes we'll fail over and over and over. Working in the VA, I, I worked with addicts for a long time. I thought once that addict comes for treatment, they'll never fail again. That's not the case. They'll fail, and they'll fail, and they'll fail. But every time that they stop their drug or their drink, they get a little bit better. And maybe the next time, they'll get six months sobriety. And then if they fail, maybe the next time, they'll get nine months sobriety. I talked to my best friend driving up here yesterday. He told me, and he's been to treatment five times, he said, I got my 10-month chip this week. Oh, that's exciting to me. You're not the only one. And we tend to, to forget that other people face tough times as well. Paul endured persecution, beatings, imprisonment. He knew what it was like to be in a prison cell, sitting on a hard floor, enduring the stench of his own urine and excrement. And yet he labored for years to preach the gospel, to do that which God had called him to do. Life hard, things difficult. Circumstances, not what you were expecting. Welcome to normal. This is our normal. Michael Jordan says, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the winning shot, and I've missed. I've failed over and over in my life, and that is why I succeed. You've been knocked down, get back up. Take the shot. Don't give up. Helen Keller said, although the world is full of suffering, it is also full of the overcoming of it. Yes, you will suffer in this life. 
but you can overcome by the power of Jesus Christ. The Olympic Games were held in Mexico in 1968. <clears throat> the marathon is the last event in the Olympics. The Olympic Stadium is packed. There's excitement as the first athlete who's from Ethiopia enters the stadium, and the crowd erupts as he finishes the race. But way back in the field is another runner by the name of John Stephen Aquahari from Tanzania. He has been passed by all of the other runners. After 30 kilometers, his head is throbbing, his muscles are aching, and he falls to the ground. He has serious leg injuries, and the officials want him to give up and drop out of the race, but he refuses. And so with his knees bandaged up, Aquahari picks himself up, and he hobbles the remaining seven miles to the finish line. An hour after the first runner crossed the finish line, Aquahari began to make his way into the stadium. Just about all the crowd had left, but the crowd that was still in the stadium stood up and began to cheer for Aquahari as he crossed the finish line. When he crossed the line, he, he fell into the arms of medical personnel who whisked him off to the hospital. Next day, Aquahari appeared before sports journalists, and of course, the question that they all had was this. Why, after sustaining the injuries that you did, would you get back up and finish the race when there was no way that you could possibly place and win the race? John Stephen Aquahari said this. He said, my country did not send me over 11,000 kilometers to start a race. They sent me over 11,000 kilometers to finish one. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has not called you to start a race. Jesus has called you to finish one and to finish well by being faithful to him until death. King Solomon, who was an upright man after falling, he says an upright man after falling seven times will get back up again. You've been fishing all night. You caught nothing. Get back up again and launch out into the deep water, finish the race.